Welcome back to our study of the book of Philippians called A Better Brand of Happiness. This is session 17. And in this session, we continue the paragraph we began last time, which is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. I invite you to turn there now and follow along as I read Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18, which says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according, uh, in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But if not, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the next paragraph as I see it in the book of Philippians. And as I spent uh, most of the time last session talking about the big idea and how I developed the big idea from this session. Since I did that, I'm just going to review the big idea this morning before jumping into the details of this text. And so as I see it, the implied question in this passage is, what is God's will for the present life of every believer? The part about God's will comes from the fact that the scriptures say that um, this is God's good purpose in verse 13, that we do these things. And so God's purpose is similar language to that of his will. And the part about being the present life of the believer comes from the phrase in verse 12, which is work out your salvation. And so that's our present and future as Christians. And so according to Paul then, what is God's will for the present life of every believer? I believe the answer is, it's to become a bright light in the world through obedience and faithfulness, no matter what happens. Paul's um, future was in doubt. Now, he had confidence that he would be released from this imprisonment where he was when he wrote these words. And in fact, if, our, if we understand the timeline of church history correctly, he was actually released after this. And so Paul had some confidence, as we saw in, in chapter 1, that he would be released from prison, but he wasn't sure that he would be released from prison. And so at the end of the passage, he says, even if I'm poured out like a drink offering, in other words, even if I die as a sacrifice for Jesus Christ, you keep working out your salvation. Keep shining like stars. And so that's what uh, God's will is for us. What, no matter what happens to those who lead us, no matter what happens to those who brought us to Christ and mentored us and taught us, we're Christians. And as Christians, we need to continue to do what God wants us to do, what, what continue to do what God called us to do and empowered us to do, regardless of what happens to others. And so my big idea for this passage then is simply this. God wants every believer to become a bright light for him through obedience and faithfulness, regardless of the circumstance. And so this is uh, what I believe this passage of Scripture is teaching. 
And so let's uh, jump into the details. Some of these details we started last time, and so I'll be brief in that part, Just to, but, but we need to, to get a running start and start, in a sense, from the beginning. So in verses 12 through 13, we see that Paul commanded the believers in Philippi to continue to obey the Lord. In verse 12, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is a command to continue to obey the Lord. And they should obey in a manner that's consistent with their prior obedience. He says in verse 12, as you have always obeyed. In other words, Paul is not calling the people in Philippi, nor is he calling us as believers, to do something different than we've done before. Obedience is part of the Christian life. In fact, the Bible even uses the term of obedience in a couple of places to describe how we become believers. It says we become obedient to the faith. That is, we uh, obey God's command to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And then as believers, we continue to follow Christ by living in obedience to his commands. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. And so obedience is essential to the Christian life. And even from your infancy as a believer, you started doing what God's word says. You started on a path of obedience to his word. And so Paul is just reminding them here, listen, I've already seen your track record of obedience. What I'm calling you to do now is not something different than before. It's a continuation of what has already happened. And Paul knew their obedience was genuine because it existed whether he was there to observe it or not. Remember in verse 12, he says, you have obeyed not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Paul is saying, even though I'm not there to check up on your obedience, I know that you have been continuing to grow in your faith. I know that you have been continuing to follow the Lord. And I talked last time about this sort of secular proverb, you don't get what you expect, you get what you inspect, right? Which means when you delegate Something, somebody to some, some task to someone else, or you tell somebody to do something, often, because we are depraved and we are sinners, that person will not do it unless they know you're going to check, or even if they're, they're, you're, you are looking over their shoulder. You get what you inspect, not what you expect. Well, Paul says, that wasn't true in your life. I didn't have to inspect your obedience. He says, even in my absence, you've continued to obey and follow the Lord. And so now this, what he's telling them to do is just an encouragement to keep going. When he says in verse 12, uh, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, the phrase continue to work out your salvation is just another way of saying be obedient to God's word. He says you've already obeyed, now continue to work out your salvation. Continue your obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. He just uses a different terminology to give us a different picture of what obedience in the Christian life is. When the scripture says in verse 12, to continue to work out your salvation, he is talking about extending the work of God's grace, extending the work of salvation throughout all of the parts of your life, throughout every aspect of your life as a person. We don't work for our salvation. Right? The Bible's clear about that. Salvation is not by works, lest anyone should boast, to somewhat paraphrase Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We don't work to get our salvation, but once we are saved, we work out our salvation in our lives. And that means taking the holiness of God that he has imputed to us, 
the righteousness of God, which he has imputed to us. You understand that there are declarative truths in the Christian life that when you got saved, God pronounced you to be holy and pure and righteous just as Jesus Christ himself is. And God always treats every believer that way. He treats us not according to what we deserve, but according to what Jesus deserves because he was perfect and holy and righteous. And as a Christian, you will always be perfect in the sight of God because of the merits of Jesus applied to you by God's grace. But as a Christian, you should be taking the holiness and righteousness of God and making it real in your life through obedience. And so when Paul says, work out your salvation, he's saying, take the holiness of God that's been imputed to you in Christ. Take the righteousness of God, which has been credited to you in Christ. And work it out throughout your salvation or throughout your life so that you actually become holy as a person and that you actually become righteous as a person, reflecting the glory of God. Working out your salvation means spreading the holiness and righteousness of God imputed to you in Christ into every aspect of your life. And it's, con- it's connected to you. And another way of describing the, right, the requirement that Paul said of obedience, when he says in verse 12, as you have always obeyed, Working out your salvation is a continuation of that obedience. Now, we need to pause here and think about this aspect of what Paul is teaching about growing in the Christian life. Because God has given to us as Christians all kinds of assistance in growing in the Christian life. God has given to you the Holy Spirit who remains with you throughout your entire life. And Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. Since you have that Holy Spirit within you now, you have His working on your conscience so that when you are presented with a choice, a moral choice, the Holy Spirit helps you discern what is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do. And so you have the Holy Spirit with you as one of the tools to assist you in your obedience. You also have the church. God created the church. And why did he do it? Well, in Matthew 28, he he commanded the disciples, go make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. All right, the church was formed. It was instituted by Christ to help with that part about teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. God has given to you and me, the church, to teach us everything Christ commands and to give us some accountability with other people, some helpers with other people. And so God's given you the Holy Spirit. He's given you the church. He's also given you pastors and teachers within the church to help you obey. Pastors and teachers can give you wisdom about how to take the principles of God's Word and apply them to your life. We can help you sort out the decisions of life. What would be the right thing to do in a situation where you're not sure? What's the godly thing to do? That's what pastors and teachers were given to the church for. Of course, ultimately, God has given us His Word. And we believe in the priesthood of every believer, which means you have the right to go to God's Word, to study it for yourself, and to apply it for yourself. But we also are here to help you with that, to teach you um, what it means to, to handle the word correctly. We call these the means of grace. 
They're the way God conveys his grace to believers. He does it through the spirit, the church, pastors and teachers, the word, other believers, and so on. These are the means of grace in the Christian life. But here's the point. Nobody can make you obey. We can give you all kinds of assistance. But ultimately, you make the choices that you make with your life. You make the choice whether to receive God's word and put it into practice or not. You make the choice whether to obey the commands of Scripture or not. We can give you all kinds of assistance in the Christian life, but only you can obey God. And so when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he is saying, ultimately, your growth is dependent on your actions and your choices. Yes, they are under the sovereignty of God and under the control of the Holy Spirit. No doubt about that. And then we'll get to that in the next verse. But the point is, if you're waiting around and you think somebody else should do something to make you godly, you're missing what God's Word says. God has given you all kinds of tools. He's given you everything you need to live a godly life. If you're not living a godly life, if you're living in sin or just stagnating in your Christian life, you're not growing, you're not making godly choices, no one's seeing improvement in your life, what's happening is you're not working out your salvation. You're not actively taking all that God has given to you in Christ and and working it out in your life. And I just have to say that as a pastor, I'm astounded by how many Christians sit around in sort of in a stalled state in their life, and they act like they're waiting for me or for somebody else to come along and do something to make them follow Jesus. I can't do that, okay? I can pour out God's Word to you, and I can encourage you, and I can admonish you even. I can warn you, but I, I can't make choices for you. It's uh, just to make a little more practical example, years ago I started writing a daily devotional. It was to help people in our church read the Bible every day. I made it as easy as possible. Okay, All you have to do is sign up in email and check your email once a day and click on a link and you can read the passage right there in your browser and you can, if you choose, read some things I wrote about it. This is the easiest way that I could think of to help somebody read through the Bible. And a bunch of people in our church have done it. People told me years ago, the first time I did it, this is the first time in my life as a Christian I've ever read through the Bible in one year. That's great, okay? But I can't make you click on the link. I can't make you read the Word. I've done everything I can to make it as easy for you as possible. But you still have to make a decision, and you still have to do the reading, and you still have to think about its implications for your life. And so if your Christian life is stalled... The responsibility is on you. The command is to you to work out your salvation. And notice the manner in which you work it out at the end of verse 12, he says, with fear and trembling. You see, it's, it's our um, reverence for the person of God. It's our respect and our worship of Him. It's our fear in the healthiest sense of the word of the holiness and righteousness of God that should give us the motivation that we need to become holy in our daily lives. And one of the reasons Christians get stalled in their Christian life is they stop worshiping God. That is, they stop reflecting on what it means to serve a holy and righteous God. And instead, they start looking at other people and they start saying, well, 
I'm better than that guy is, and I'm not committing the sin that she is, and I've grown a lot more than that person does. See, if we compare ourselves to each other, we can find a way to feel better because we can always find someone who's doing less than we are. If we compare ourselves to the perfections of God, we compare ourselves to the obedience of His Son, Jesus Christ, which was just described in the previous paragraph. We see how far we fall short of the glory of God, and that should motivate us to want to become more like Jesus Christ, be more obedient in our Christian life. In verse 13, then, Paul goes forward and says, their obedience was the result of God's work, not their own self-generated improvement. See, this is a, this is a struggle, a tension that we have to understand in Christian theology. And it's a tension that the church goes to seed on one way or the other often. The tension that I'm describing here is this. God commands you to be obedient. And then he tells you, it's Christ's work in you that makes you obedient. All right, that seems like a contradiction, but it's not. Both work together. Look at verse 13. He says in verse 13, For it is God who works in you. You see, I have just said your Christian life is on you. Your growth and development in it has to do with your obedience, your choices. And it is on you. But you're not alone because it is the work of God in your life that should cause you to want to follow Jesus. It's changing you so that you will follow Jesus. The word for is telling us the reason why it's possible for us to be obedient to the word of God. And that is because God is changing us within. He's doing spiritual work on us. He's removing the lusts of the flesh and of the eyes and the, the desire to, um, to love this world, this present world, as the scripture says, God's Holy Spirit is working those things out of us and he's installing in us instead a desire to see God's kingdom come, a desire to be holy like Jesus is. And so as the means of grace are worked out in your life, as the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin and righteousness, as you hear the word of God and you think about its implications for your life, God is changing you in your spirit. And the reason why you obey is not because you just buckle down with hard self-discipline and say, well, this stinks and I don't like it, but I'm going to do what Jesus tells me to do. No, it's, you say, I want to do what Jesus tells me to do because God's working in my life. And so the motivation and the power to do this comes from the work of God. Verse 13 says, for it is God who works in you. And how does he work? In two ways. One, to will. That is, God works in you so that you desire to be obedient to Jesus Christ. So that instead of somebody sort of having to verbally, I wouldn't physically do this, but verbally whip you into shape and force you to do things you don't want to do, the Holy Spirit of God, when you hear the commands of Scripture over time, changes your will. So that instead of wanting to do your own way, but being forced by pressure in the church or by teaching or by me verbally assaulting you as a leader in the church to do what I want you to do or what I think Christ wants you to do, God changes your desires over time so that you want to do what God's word says. Why? Because it's God who works in you, number one, to will, and then notice the second one, and to act according to fulfill his good purpose. Over time as a Christian, as God works in your life through the means of grace, the Spirit, the Word, the church, and so on, 
you not only want to do his will, but you actually start doing his will. You actually start following through on the things that God wants you to do. You want to fulfill his purpose. You understand that God's will for your life is for you to become holy like he is. And for us as a church to become holy like he is. And for us as a church then to shine as a light to the world, which we'll get to later in this paragraph, probably not in this session, but to shine as a light to the world so that people can see the glory of God reflected in us. And as you grow as a Christian, you start wanting to do that and you start putting that into practice in your life. And so this is the result of, or I'm sorry, this is uh, the... um, The result of God's work in your life is obedience. It's not a a self-generated improvement. It's not self-help. It's not self-discipline even, although self-discipline is part of the picture. It's not self-discipline the same way that you do a diet or enter an exercise regimen. You do it because you you want the result, but even though you hate the process, right? It's that God's works in your life, so you love the process and want the result so that you will and obey according to his good purpose. That, that, that last phrase, in order, to act, in order to fulfill his good purpose, describes the result of God's work in them. That God's purpose is worked out in this world. His will is accomplished in this world through Christians like us, growing in our faith, desiring to do what God's will says, and doing what God's will says. This is how God accomplishes his will in this world. Now, in verse 14, Paul turns from talking about the concept of obedience to talking about obedience in a couple of very specific ways. It's very easy for us to talk about the concept of holiness, the concept of obedience, the concept of righteousness, but when someone touches our pet sin, or maybe it's not our pet sin, it's a, it's a blind spot that we have in the Christian life, all of a sudden then sometimes the defenses go up, right? We get defensive about certain specific applications of obedience to Christ in our particular lives as Christians. And in verse 14, Paul turns to some specifics, some ways in which the believers then and now can specifically work out our salvation in obedience. And he says in verse 14, do everything without complaining, without grumbling or arguing. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Or arguing. What does it mean to work out your salvation? It means many things, but one of the things it means is to be able to work with other believers and other people without complaining. That is, he uses the word grumbling, but that's the same word, complaining, grumbling, same idea. Following Christ obediently means learning to interact with other people without grumbling about it and without arguing with them. Both complaining and arguing are self-centered activities. They're self-focused. And here we see the connection to all that has come before in chapter 2. Remember at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul commanded the believers there, because of all that Christ has done for us, to do nothing out of self-ambition or, or self, uh, selfish ambition or vain conceit in verse 3. Now Paul is coming back to that. And he's saying complaining and argument are manifestations of selfish ambition or vain conceit. 
Complaining and arguing are self-oriented and self-centered activities. Let's think about this. Because when we complain, what are we doing? We're focusing on ourselves by telling others how annoyed we are with the current state of our lives or the current situation that we're complaining about. That's what complaining is. When we argue, we're focused on ourselves by telling others how angry we are with how they are treating us. Okay, and so complaining and arguing are manifestations of selfishness, which is exactly the opposite of what God wants us to do in working on our salvation. He said, be more like Christ. Be sacrificing yourself for others instead of seeking things for yourselves. Now, let's focus on these things a little bit more closely. These are such common sins among Christians, complaining and arguing are so common among us all, not just Christians, but throughout the world, that I think we should take some time to think about each one in just a little bit, all right? So let's start with complaining. What is complaining? Complaining is a verbal statement that something is unacceptable to you. Complaining is a verbal statement that something is unacceptable to you. If something's acceptable to you, you got nothing to say about it. It's fine, right? and not in a sarcastic sense. When something is unacceptable to you, that's when we are at least tempted to complain, and often we do complain. And so complaining, as I've defined it here, is a verbal statement that something is unacceptable to you. Now, why do people complain? I I think there are at least two reasons, maybe more, but here's the two I've got. One, people complain because they feel they are not getting something they're entitled to receive. People complain when they feel they are not getting something that they're entitled to receive. Or you could switch it around. This is still number one, okay? That people are getting something they're not entitled to receive, something negative, okay? But this is about entitlement. People complain about entitlement. Number two, people complain when they feel powerless to change a situation they don't like. Why do people complain? Sometimes they complain because they're not getting something they feel entitled to receive, And sometimes we complain because we feel powerless to change a situation we don't like. Now let's think about some real-world examples of this, including some in the church. I said a minute ago, you and I complain when we feel that we are not getting something we are entitled to receive. Last week, I think it was, I ordered a burrito bowl from a local fast-food Mexican establishment that I will not name. And I ordered online using their app, as I've done many, many, many times before. This is why I know what I'm about to complain about is not my fault, because I just did the same order as the last time, okay? I changed nothing, all right? So I ordered online, and I went into the store, and they have a nice place where you can pick up your order. I didn't have to interact with any humans at all. It was wonderful. I picked up my order... I left the building, I drove down here to my office to eat lunch, and when I opened the bowl, there was no chicken in it whatsoever. I ordered a chicken burrito bowl. The grilled vegetables I ordered were in there, the black beans I ordered were in there, the cheese I ordered was in there, but there was no chicken whatsoever. Now, I didn't have time to drive back to the store to complain about it, but had I complained about it, my complaint would have been legitimate, right? I paid for a chicken burrito bowl, and I deserve to receive chicken in my chicken burrito bowl. I'm entitled to this because I paid for it. 
They would have the same complaint to me if my payment bounced, or my form of payment didn't work, right? They would say, we are entitled to be paid for this food that you gave us. And so therefore, I'm also entitled to receive the thing that I ordered, the thing that I paid for. And so sometimes complaining is legitimate. Sometimes complaining is a legitimate way to solve a legitimate grievance. But not usually. Usually when we think of complaining, we're not talking about somebody who is using words to solve a legitimate grievance. Usually we think about someone who is complaining because they feel entitled to something that they may not truly be entitled to. Outside of this building, there are, I don't know how many, many, many parking spots, right? During the week, I park right outside the the doors to this building because I'm usually the only one, or Pastor Rich and I are the only ones here who are here here on a consistent basis. And so since there's plenty of other parking near the building, I'm not depriving anybody of anything by parking near the building. But on Wednesday, when Bible Study Fellowship is here, I park away from the building, okay? And on Sunday, when I come here, I also park away from the building because I want to leave the best parking spots for other people. Now, let's say that on a random Monday or a random Thursday, I come to church to work and someone is... Let me back up and say this. I'm a creature of habit, all right? So I tend to do the same things the same way over and over again. And actually, I kind of dislike it when my habit is interrupted, all right? But let's say on a random Monday or a random Tuesday, I come to park in the usual parking spot and somebody is already parked there. Do I have the right to hunt that person down, not literally, but to find them in the building and say, you are parking in my parking spot? No, I do not have the right to do that. Because I don't have a parking spot. I have a habit that I've developed over time and that works well for me and usually doesn't deprive anybody of anything. But if someone gets to the building before me and they park where I'm usually accustomed to parking, that might irritate me and it might cause me to want to complain. But my complaining is illegitimate. I might be complaining using words to express a situation that's unacceptable to me. But the truth is, it's unacceptable to me because I'm self-centered and self-focused, not because I've been legitimately deprived of something that is legitimately mine. Now, the Bible teaches us how to address legitimate complaints. The Bible teaches personal confrontation. When you have a legitimate complaint, when somebody deprives you of something that is legitimately yours, biblically speaking, you have two options. You can either cover it in love Or you can confront in love. Notice that love covers both of those, okay? If I confront a situation where I've been deprived of something that I deserve, and so my complaint is legitimate, I'm still, as a Christian, supposed to address it in love. But I also have the option of, the Bible would say, just covering in love. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. That means sometimes as Christians, we need to just take some deprivation, even when it's legitimate. We need to just say, well, this person may have deprived me of something, but I'm just not going to worry about it. Perhaps they did it ignorantly. Perhaps, you know, there's some reason for it. I'm just not going to make this an issue. The Bible tells us how to confront legitimate problems, how to handle legitimate complaints that we have. The problem is we have many illegitimate complaints. The problem is we get so self-centered and so self-focused We feel entitled to things. 
And so we complain, we use our words, we make a verbal statement to express something that's unacceptable to us. The Bible says this is sin. That when we complain illegitimately and unbiblically, we're not working on our salvation with fear and trembling because we're not acting like Christ who gave up his rights to save us. Now in the church, these the examples I've given you are minor and they're easy to relate to and they're easy to laugh about because they're common but they're minor. But in the church, complaining is a serious problem. I'm talking about the church as a whole, not our church necessarily, though I don't think we're exempt from it. In fact, when I came to this church years ago as, an, as the associate pastor here, my wife and I were looking for a place to get involved in the church, and one of the things that we kind of saw as being a, a, a need in the church was that the kind of the younger adults didn't really have any specific ministries designed for them. And so we just occasionally would host an event for younger adults in the church, and eventually I got some criticism about that. Not directly, I can handle direct criticism, but through the grapevine I heard that some people were grumbling. They were complaining that we were having, trying to serve the younger people in the church, and the way this complaint was phrased was, you only care about the younger people in the church, which wasn't true at all. In fact, we did things for other age groups in the church, I'm not sure what the sensitivity was about the young people in the church, but there was some complaining about it. Well, what do we do with that? Why would someone in the church, someone who is following Jesus Christ, someone who is trying to work out their salvation in fear and trembling, why would someone like that complain or be tempted to complain when someone else is serving maybe another segment of the church that they're not involved in? The answer is because they feel entitled to something and they're not getting it. But here's a truth, and one that we should all think about as members of this church. Shouldn't the church always be focused on the weaker believers in the sense of not pandering to them, but trying to address their needs? That is, if there's a segment of our church where there are younger people and they're making decisions that are going to affect their future as Christians, their future as people, Shouldn't the older people in the church who've already gone through that process and made those decisions, been mentored by older people, shouldn't we now turn back and say, we want to serve you and help you do those things? Isn't that kind of the mature way of thinking about things? And so if as I get older, I get irritated that the church is serving younger people too much, maybe the problem is with me. Maybe I'm used to receiving and being the center of ministry, and now that my life has moved on and I've reached a place of spiritual wisdom and maturity to where I'm able to give back to others, I haven't sort of flipped that switch mentally and said, well, now serving the Lord means serving other people and putting their needs and interests ahead of mine. So a lot of complaining in the church about ministries done and not done, things that are priorities and not priorities, often come from someone who has a self-centered focus about how the church is serving or not serving. Well, that talks about one aspect of complaining, okay? The aspect that says people complain when they are not getting something they feel entitled to receive. But there's another reason why people complain, and that is when they feel powerless to change a situation they do not like. People complain when they feel powerless to change a situation they don't like. What's an example of this? It's being stuck in traffic, right? <laughs> there are a few things 
as unpleasant in our daily experience as trying to get someplace on time. And yet, because there's an accident that's got a lane closed that's slowing down traffic, or because there is construction that is pinching traffic down and slowing things for us, or just because there are too many cars on the road at any given time, and it's going to take us longer to get there than we projected. What's the problem there? Especially like if you're on the freeway and you, like traffic is dead stopped and you can't get to the next exit to try to change your situation. What do you do? You feel powerless, right? That is a horrible feeling. And it's what causes us to complain to the other people in the car about the Department of Transportation and their poor choices for construction or about the police and how there should be, shouldn't be pulling people over when there's so much traffic going on and whatnot, right? We complain to others in the car or maybe you get out your phone and call somebody else up to make yourself feel better so you can complain to them. Why? It's because you feel powerless about the situation. And this happens in church too. A number of years ago, we, uh, we did what we do, do now, which is st- children start in the worship service with us, and then after the first set of songs, we dismiss them to children's church, right? We did that then, we do that now. In between, there was a period of time where we didn't have the kids start with us. We had them start in another room, they had their own worship time, and then they went to their classes. There was a family that complained about this change. They wanted their kids in the worship service with them. And I said, that's fine. I don't, that's fine with me. If you want to have the kids in the worship service with you and then take them back to children's church when we're done, I'm okay with that. But they weren't okay with that. They wanted everybody to do it their way. All right, There was a reason why we made the decision that we made. And we changed it back when that reason went away. But the point is they felt powerless because they did not like the decision that was made. And their complaining was because they felt powerless in the situation. Ultimately, they left the church over this one tiny little insignificant thing. People complain when they feel powerless to change a situation that they don't like. But what's the right solution to this? Because you see, in a church, there are always going to have to be decisions made that affect some people in ways they don't like. Who has the right to make those decisions? We believe it's the elders of the church. We believe that God calls and empowers godly men, men with wisdom, to make decisions, insignificant ones, as I think that one was, and more significant ones, for the good of the overall church. That means there are some people who don't have the power to speak into those situations or to affect change. Remember, Jesus laid aside his rights, what he deserved as God, in order to do what was good for the whole of the church, to give his life as a ransom for us. In the church, there are people who get frustrated with decisions that are made, or maybe like the legacy of decisions made a long time ago that we still have to live with. And we don't like those decisions. They negatively impact us, and we feel powerless to change them, and we start complaining. But the point is, God gave leadership to the church. The right response is to say, I am not in leadership of the church, if if you're not. That is, you're you're not an elder, so you're not in a position to make a decision. So as a follower of Christ, working out my salvation with fear and trembling means not complaining about it. It means accepting what the leadership God gave me has decided to do. Of course, that doesn't mean if they do something unbiblical. What we're talking about here is not a biblical issue or a non-biblical issue. What we're talking about here is trying to affect the best 
um, situation for the church as a whole. People complain when they feel powerless to change a situation that they don't like. But the truth of the matter is all of us encounter daily situations that we don't like. And as Christians, we need to take the same attitude of Jesus, who did not insist on his rights, even though he deserved them, and did not uh, put himself ahead of others, but instead he emptied himself. Remember, he laid down his pride for the good of the church. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling, being obedient to God means learning how to live with other Christians without complaining. The next time we get together for our next session, we'll talk about arguing and some of the other verses in this passage of Scripture. But I hope that you'll think about what the Lord would have you change in your life accordingly. Are you frustrated with a situation and tempted to complain about it? Or reject from a situation where the Lord would want you to stay and serve? The Scripture tells us that a better brand of happiness is to learn to live submissively to the Lord's will, and to the authority structures that He has put over the church, to put our trust in Him and His sovereign plan and His choices and the leaders He's given to us, and to cooperate with our leadership and with other Christians for the good of all of the people. A better brand of happiness is not trying to affect change through complaining and arguing. A better brand of happiness is working out your salvation by learning to do everything without complaining and without arguing. This is a better brand of happiness.